1: Wednesday, July 1st, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes, our tribe beat writer. Hoynes, it's it's July 1st. We've we we've made it to the, the end of June. It, it's reporting day, testing day for the Indians uh, at their intake facility. So the, the day that all of the players and coaches get an eight-inch cotton swab shoved up their nose, and hopefully at the end of this day, or in a couple of days we we find out that everybody's good and healthy and ready to go.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, it all starts. I think the Indians have been going through this for a couple of days. It sounds like Mm -hmm. from our conversations with uh, Chris Antonetti um, uh, that, that they've been testing players since maybe since Friday, I think. And uh, so I, you know, they want to hit the ground running on, on uh, what, July third, which is Friday, that'll be really the first actual day of work, I think, with uh, the full squads maybe in in East Lake and mm-hmm. uh, at Classic Park and uh, and Progressive Field in Cleveland.
1: Right. Uh, so it's an important day because you know this is the the players and the coaches are all supposed to be in town. It's sort of like the pitchers and catchers report day uh, in spring training. This is like the day that everybody looks forward to. There's not a lot of like official. You know workouts going on that that starts in a couple of days, but this is the day that everybody sort of tr- uh, circles as the the first day. You know, get there, get everything organized, get set. Uh, only this this just includes a, a a pretty invasive, you know, uncomfortable test where they stick cotton up your your nose. That not fun. Um. So yeah, just about the fact that we're that much closer to baseball within the next twenty five days you know, hopefully we're going to see major league games back in, in, in the ballparks.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, it's kind of exciting, Joe. Uh, just, uh, you know, the first week, I think it sounds like they're going to get right into it, start starting to play some simulated games. I, you know, I would imagine if uh, things go all right uh, toward the end of uh, next week, they'll they'll be playing some, uh, maybe even some inter-squad games. And uh, it they got 3 weeks so I, I, they're going to try to ease into it but you can't ease into it too much you've got to get people ready and uh, so i think they'll be on the fast track here
1: that's those four that's a four letter word if you're if you're Terry Francona the inner squad game he doesn't he doesn't like those he certainly doesn't like that but uh says so he's going to have to fall in love with them i guess so you got 3 weeks to get ready all right on the agenda for today uh, we are going to chat with Author Alex Harnotes, who's put together a really interesting book, a really interesting concept, uh, the Perfect Season Project, where what if the Indians had won every game once, one through one sixty-two, or you know, had the Indians won in every game on their calendar in their history, and you know, just calling up some of the uh, really notable and magical performances on the field uh, in the, you know, more than a hundred year history of the the Indians franchise. Uh, I, I had a chance to talk to him for about 15 minutes here and, the uh, the book is available through Amazon and on his website and, uh, just a really interesting, uh, idea, really interesting concept. And, uh, you, you, Paul, you, you actually, you know, got to be there for most of those, uh, <laughs> you know, instances that were, were mentioned in the book on the, on the field. So, uh it should be should be a lot of fun for you to read through that and, and sort of recall some of these things that happened that, that you had, you know, maybe forgotten about.
2: Yeah, what a great idea, Joe. I mean, just and think of the research involved in that. That mm-hmm. I can't even get my wrap my head around that. Uh what <laughs> what what have the Indians been playing since nineteen oh one? So right. game one of uh how many seasons they've played? Uh I don't know. How many games a total have they played and to, to dig through all that and uh you know it, just sort it and, and rank it and pick the best the best game one ever uh it's 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 just a, a great idea and uh I, I can't wait to read the book
1: uh, i I'm, I'm pretty sure the best game one ever was probably turned in by a guy named feller i i'm that's just a hunch i'm you know just throwing yeah, that out there day, right i'm just gonna <laughs> just gonna say you know the first the first game of the season you throw a no-hitter I think that goes in the book but uh yeah very interesting uh concept so we're gonna um step away and uh talk to author Alex Harnots about his perfect season project and then when we come back we'll uh we'll get into the rest of the day's news here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast all right we're joined by first-time author Alex Harnots uh Alex good to talk to you author of The Perfect Season Project. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of background on uh, how you came up with the idea and, and really how the book came about? Sure. Thanks for having me,
0: Joe. Appreciate, appreciate your time. So Perfect Season Project came out of uh, basically a, a trivia question. Um, you know, you hear the broadcaster at the beginning of a, of a game often sort of timestamp it with this is game one, this is game two, this is game 20 of the such and such season. And I often thought like, okay, over 120 years of Indians history, have they won every game? Wouldn't it be weird if there was a game where they had not won? And so I took some of the winningest seasons, 1920, 54, 97, and started to stack them up next to each other in a spreadsheet. And I found out pretty quickly that the Indians had won every game uh, on the baseball calendar throughout history. And so that raised the second question. Well, if they've won every game, you could put all those in order and build a perfect season. Uh, And so the perfect season project started with a spreadsheet uh, with 162 rows for each game in the baseball calendar. And I started filling in, you know, historic, unique, interesting games uh, that also happened to be Indians' wins. And so, what you end up with is a perfect season of 162 wins where something interesting happens every day.
1: Mm-hmm. So, really, these were only games that the Indians won. So, if something interesting happened in an Indians' loss, you were kind of left holding the bag there. You couldn't include it in the project, right? It doesn't count.
0: Correct, correct. So one of the most interesting things I've ever seen in person, I was at the game where Asdrubal Cabrera had the unassisted triple play. I mm-hmm. uh, was there with a college buddy. We, we saw the triple play, and that is my memory of the day. So when I started to fill in the spreadsheet, I was like, oh, triple play. We got to put this one in. Looked it up. They actually lost that game to the Blue Jays, mm-hmm. so I couldn't use it. And uh, there, were, there were a number of those sort of conflicts. Um, and there were also conflicts between uh, great things that ended up happening in the same game. Um, and so it was, it was sort of a tough choice between the two sometimes.
1: What was your formula for like, sort of valuing uh, when something like that would happen, either uh, two different games on the same day or two times in the same game? what would you value higher as the as sort of the moment that was sort of more worthy of being included? Mm -hmm. Well,
0: you know, a lot of those were subjective. um, But I think that when you view the perfect season project as a whole, what I was trying to capture was sort of this, this holistic overview of Indians history. And so for example, you know, right off the bat, you have a great Conflict uh, on on game one opening day Mm -hmm. between 1994 the first day at Jacobs Field against Randy Johnson and you know the walk off, Um, but you also have Bob Feller throwing the only opening day no hitter in baseball history, and so just based on rarity um, and also the fact that there are so many great '90s stories and we get to talk about those players in other places within the project. I went with Bob Feller in game one.
1: And it's funny because, you know, Hoinsey tells a story of watching Bob Feller in the press box during that 94 game and Randy Johnson getting closer and closer to his, uh, his mark, his, his uh, no hitter record. And, and basically, uh, you know, this, this big sigh of relief that sort of went, went through the press box when, when Feller realized that uh, I believe it was Manny Ramirez broke up that no hitter. With I a, think
0: that's right yeah a double and, and how those ball. those two games sort of play play into the history of each other
1: right yeah very interesting stuff uh, you know it's it, it, what were some of the challenges that you faced were there any you know in, in finding the information or finding uh you know ways to present the information whether it's you know with visuals or anything like that were were, were there any pro, uh you know problems that you ran into
0: well, I mean, I would say the, the biggest problem is that, you know, in, in filling out that large grid and, and trying to identify the games that I wanted to use, um, you know, 70, 80% of them um, were, were rather clear. You know, there was something historic that had happened, a record that was broken, a cycle, uh, a triple play, a perfect game, something that, that could come up that way. For the other 20%, I really had to go looking in a lot of cases. Um, you know, through old box scores, baseball reference, baseball almanac, those sorts of resources, um, in order to identify something um, either unique that had sort of been lost to history or, or not told as often, or just to, to highlight a player um, that had a great story and contributed um, something special to that game. So, one example of that, that um, is, is one of my favorites in the book is game, is game 37. Um, Probably one of my, my favorites in the whole book. Um, That was George Yule was a pitcher for the Indians in the 1920s. Um, Not one of the biggest names of that 1920 world series team, but one of the best hitting pitchers of all time. And George in 1936, 1936 game 37 or 1926 game 37 i'm mm-hmm. sorry um hit a walk-off home run in the 11th inning of his own complete game now certainly that happened a lot more often in the dead ball era mm-hmm. um, but home runs didn't happen all that often right so identifying that story about george and and going to be able to tell his story um, which I don't know if you know, but he's a really interesting character in Indians' history.
1: Yeah, he's, he's he was a kind of a big lumbering dude, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, and he's actually a Cleveland native. Grew up on the west side. Went to West High School, and he got recruited into this semi-pro league that were that was a thing in the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. for a factory called Standard Parts, and the Indians asked him to come to spring training. And he got it written into his contract that he was coming back to Cleveland one way or the other. Either they were going to take him to the big league team or he was going to go back to work at Standard Parts. And uh, so he went down to spring training, which was then in New Orleans, uh, impressed uh, the, the front office and got invited to the team. But it, I I thought that was uh, a, a wild story that he was coming back to Cleveland one way or the other.
1: Well, that's very interesting, and uh, you know, just to to be able to to bring up some of those different names, you know, ob- obviously the 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 fellers and the Boudreaux and the you know Larry Doby and all those guys that, that those all have to be mentioned at least somewhere in the book. But you know, for a for a, a fan who doesn't know about George Ewell, that, that's very interesting to to try to find. I I want to, you know, take a second right here in the middle just to sort of uh make sure people know Perfect Season Project, Alex Harnotes is the author and the book's available now. Uh how how can they they purchase or or get a copy?
0: Yeah, so the book's available primarily on Amazon. Uh if you search Perfect Season Project, you can also buy it directly from me uh at perfectseasonproject.com. So through, throughout the 2019 season, um I had been drafting and posting these games along with the uh the 2019 season so sort Mm -hmm. of a a recap in real time so those um first version of these games are up there on perfectseasonproject.com but they've all been edited updated sort of fleshed out in greater detail for the book and so um, you know some of that content will be familiar to people who were familiar with the blog but it's certainly been expanded, updated, improved.
1: Right. If you want the whole picture, uh, you know, look at the the book, not just the blog, but uh, the, exactly. the blog, the blog is a way to get uh, get in touch with the, uh, the, the content there. Uh, any other, uh, you know, games really stand out or, or things that you learned, obviously you're, you're an Indians fan. You wouldn't do this if you weren't uh, a, a long time, sort of died in the wool Indians fan. Uh, anything that, that you learned during this project that really sort of, Stuck with you?
0: Um, I, well, so I, I spent a lot of time as I was filling out the uh, the spreadsheet, just sort of asking people at at barbecues, at at cookouts, at, at anywhere that I could bend someone's ear about baseball. What's the most interesting thing you've seen at an Indians game? And that helped me to to uncover some of these sort of hidden gems. And I, I think my favorite one out of out of that whole set was game 77, and originally, I had that slated for the 2015 game where Carlos Carrasco took a no-hitter to the, to the 26 batter, mm-hmm. and that would have been a great story to tell, um, but it ends in a little bit of disappointment. Right. So I asked that question, what, what's the most interesting thing you'd seen in an Indians game, and uh, one of my wife's friends said, you know, I was at this game in the 90s with my dad, and this guy just kept hitting foul balls and, and they made a real big deal out of it. And they were counting up on the scoreboard. And I don't remember the details, but there were so many foul balls. So I started to sort of dig into the research. And this was actually uh, in 2000 or it was in 1998, rather. It was was Bartolo Colon Mm -hmm. against the Astros, and Bartolo had this incredible game going. He had thrown 84 pitches through seven innings, uh, scattered two runs, and Ricky Gutierrez comes up to lead off the eighth inning and just starts hitting foul balls. So Bartolo gets him into an 0-2 count, a couple of foul-offs, a ball, a couple of foul-offs, a ball. Ricky spoils six in a row in, on the 2-2 pitch, spoils six in a row on the full count, and Bartolo eventually strikes him out. 20 pitch at bat, which at that point was the longest in, in recorded baseball history. And uh, you know, just as she had described, there, there are counts of you know the, the crowd getting turned up after you know, 10 or 12 pitches and, and the scoreboard announcing this is the longest at bat in baseball history. And that's something, you know, you, you wouldn't normally find or find reference, but it's, it's a great Bartolo story from, right. from someone who has so many great stories.
1: Right. Well, and, and the best part about that is, obviously, the Indians went on to win that game. And exactly. That, that sort of makes – if Bartolo Colon had had given up a home run and, and lost the game or something like that, it it wouldn't make the book and it wouldn't make the story sort of that much sweeter for, for Indians fans.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah, I you know just really curious to to sort of sit through and and scroll through and maybe find uh it, how it matches up with uh Hoinsie and I have been doing uh during this uh quarantine time and since the the season started we've been doing like on this date in Indians history but we've mm-hmm. also been including in that, you know, things like contract signings or trades, things that happen off the field that sort of don't necessarily impact the 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 schedule of a 162 game sort of season. Uh mm-hmm. This this more focuses on exactly what happened on the field. And it, you, you obviously uh, dove into this and, and really dug deep on some of these. Um, so very, very curious to see, you know, how how Indians fans, uh, you know, sort of respond to this and, and, and sort of give you uh, their feedback uh, through your blog or through social media, too.
0: Yeah, thanks. You know, it's, it's an interesting twist on that sort of on this day or, or greatest game sort of project um it it's an opportunity to sort of focus on how baseball is unique in that it's played off the clock and really off the calendar you know there are games here that um were scheduled to be played earlier and ended up you know raining out and, and being played later in the game you know the great the great snow out uh home opener appears early on in the book and, and things like that, where um, baseball is sort of unique and that it can be affected by outside forces and that becomes a story in and of itself.
1: Yeah, it's uh, just interesting to, to think about this season with only 60 games, it, it sort of makes you think in, in, in that regard, you know, what are in game 44, what's, what's going to be different about this season than, you know, game 44 of a 162 game schedule
0: oh absolutely it'll it'll be very interesting as we move through this year i'm I'm looking forward to to making some updates to the to the project online and uh you know hopefully making some of those great memories
1: yeah, a lot fewer rows on your spreadsheet for uh for a sixty game schedule but hopefully it, <laughs> hopefully it ends with a playoff run of of some sort and you know we we get to get to that point yeah I would hope so Alex uh anything else you, you think we need to cover that that stands out about the book or about uh, you know the process of going through it that, uh, stands out to you?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. A couple of, couple of good highlights there and, uh, you know, definitely appreciate your interest in the book. Uh, I hope that that other fans, other, other people interested in baseball history and, and oddities and statistics find it, um, entertaining and, and informative.
1: It's called the perfect season project. Alex harnos is the author and he can find it at PerfectSeasonProject.com. Or is it right? PerfectSeasonProject.com. Correct. And uh, on, on Amazon. Uh, go ahead and look that up. Uh, Tribe fans, uh, a, good, uh, a good little summer read as we get closer to the possibility of baseball this year. Alex, thanks yeah, for joining us. Can... Yeah, hopefully. I hope hopefully. this can
0: fill us up uh, for the next month and then we'll be back to on the field.
1: That would be great. Alex, thanks for joining us here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Thanks so much, Joe. All right, that was author Alex Harnotes of the Perfect Season Project. Again, uh, if you're you're looking for a fun read uh, over the next month before baseball games get going, uh, it's a, a great way to, to do that. Uh, look him up, PerfectSeasonProject.com or on Amazon.com. Uh, you can buy it there as well. Hoinsie, uh big news in uh, in baseball uh, just in the last 24 hours the official announcement, the shuttering of the minor league season in 2020. Uh, we're going to talk to our uh, our Indians minor league uh, expert, Todd Paquette, uh, later on this week. But just your immediate impressions of how, what this does to baseball uh, with the announcement that there will be no minor league season
2: in 2020. Well, it's, it's a devastating, uh, Joe, and uh, it, it was anticipated, too. I don't think this snuck up on anybody, uh, you know, the The prolonged uh, negotiations between the players and the owners uh you know over uh length of season and and uh, salaries really kind of just strangled the, the the minor league season never gave it a chance to get off the ground and i and the virus too i mean as as Chris Antonetti told us a couple of days ago um, you know the big league clubs can limp through a season like this because you know they got the payoff at the end with the with the postseason and, and the MLB uh, uh, TV and radio contracts, and even the radio contracts and TV contracts during the season, Uh, that's going to, you know, that, that will help them. But minor league baseball depends strictly on fans in the stands. And, you know, if, if fans aren't allowed in the ballparks, you know, there's no minor league season. And uh, it's just really, really, they take a hit and, you know, you wonder about the future of minor league baseball, Joe.
1: Well, and, and you know, projections that I've seen have, have, you know, talked about, you know, worst case scenario, the possibility that half of all of minor league baseball could be wiped out or gone, you know, in, in, in moving into next season. The, these teams can't recover financially, so they're going to have to shut down. Uh, what would that do, you know, selfishly thinking, what would that do to, to your major league franchises If there's no ability to develop talent, uh, are we going to have to completely rethink the way that the minor league baseball works
2: moving forward? Yeah. Well, I think there's some, there's some teams like the Columbus Clippers. I talked to uh, their general manager, Ken Shanky uh, last night. Um, And uh, you know, he said they've got some, 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 some money in reserve. You know, they think they're going to get some federal, federal help, uh, financial help from the government that they should be able to uh you know weather this storm but you know teams like the short season clubs uh the Mahoning Valley those teams you know are are really in trouble and uh, you know Pat O'Connor the uh, president of minor league baseball had a conference call last night and he was saying like you said you know Joe I mean he said north of 50% of the 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 minor league clubs and he said he named 160 you know which are you know kind of under their umbrella and there's more than that obviously but uh you know they it they could take you know 2 to 3 years to recover from this and some might not recover from it right. um and, and you know they also have the uh the the, the a basic agreement uh, negotiations coming up with major league baseball you know for the 2021 season And major league baseball wants to contract you know anywhere from 40 to 42 teams so you know the the, the minor league system the minor league baseball you know, system as we know it, as fans for hundred uh, for a hundred years have known it, is is under duress right now.
1: And and you look at you know the the trend over over the last several years was that these minor league teams were were getting these you know not necessarily like the major league stadiums, but you know the nice ballparks built for them. I, I think of the one out in Las Vegas. I mean that's a that's a really nice new ballpark that they just had built for them. And and these things are going to be empty this year, or for the most part, with the, unless there's a situation like where the Indians have teams training out at, at Classic, which is close enough to the, the major league park. But you know, really, did the did the minor league system overextend itself with these these new ballparks? Is, is that does that have any bearing on you know this situation where where they didn't have the money left over to to sort of get themselves
2: through? I don't think it was, I don't know if it was so much overextending. I think it's it's Major League Baseball wanting to make, uh, you know, they want to take better care of their minor league, their, their, my, the players they draft in the draft. They want them to have better facilities. They want, they don't want them riding, you know, the bus, you know, team buses for 12 to 24 hours. They want to cut down on the lower, you know, the, the, the short season and the, and the eight, you know, the class A, class A. Uh, season teams, uh, just to make it, uh, more viable. Uh, they want to save money, I think. And, you know, they, they pay a huge amount of their you know yearly, uh, their yearly, uh, uh, salaries go, go to, uh, the minor league system. And maybe you, you know, sometimes you have, you just have a team in a, in a minor league uh, league for one player, you know, you're, you're paying mm-hmm. 20 players. So this one, this one guy can, uh, you know, develop at a ball. And I think they want to find a more efficient way to, to make it work. And, uh, you know, teams in Butte, Montana are going to, you know, feel the pinch on that.
1: Right. Especially the ones that are, are farther away and harder to get to. Uh, the Indians are, you know, one of those teams that has, has still not committed to, to paying their minor league players. You know, I, I believe yesterday was the cutoff date. Uh, there were, I, I think three major league teams, uh, that that were still not officially uh, going to pay their their stipends, uh do we know anything further on that or is that was that a, a situation yeah. still developing
2: yeah, I, I you know the, the I had heard that they were paying them through June, but I have not asked anybody about since that. what you know July and August mm-hmm. you know traditionally the minor league season usually ends at in August for at least a trip you know most of the triple a club but yeah, I think the cutoff date is for the end of the season in the minors, it's the end of August. So I've got to check on that. Right. Uh,
1: and and the Indians are one of the teams that really has developed or, uh, are, are, you know, invested in their Dominican Academy. They they put a lot of money into that, and they've got uh, a lot of good things going on down there. This doesn't affect, you know, that facility all that much, does it?
2: I don't think so. No, Joe. I think that's, you know, that's where, you know, they, they will continue to sign uh, – the international free agents and send them there, you know, from Latin America. Uh, they have a Dominican summer league team. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if that'll be affected. That could be affected by this. I don't know if that's, if the shutdown, you know, goes, goes to that extent, if or if they're still playing baseball in the Dominican.
1: Right. And, and you know, uh, there's opportunities there for the, the young players that go through there to, to earn their, their high school diplomas and, and start learning English and, and, you know, Really get on the track to get up here, and, and after a few years, get to the minors and uh, basically be developed already before they come up here. So uh, a lot of good things going on down there for the Indians and the Dominican. Um, so yeah, that's uh, a, a a big thing here is that minor league baseball shutting down, and uh, hopefully next year we we at least get to see the the teams in Columbus and Akron and and Lake County come back, and you know flourish at some point but it might be a long time before minor league baseball is as we're used to seeing it is is back to where it was
2: yeah and you know you just think of uh, the players that that lose a whole season in their you know development i mean i know the indians have brought you know some of their key young guys to these camps to you know to they'll be training at, at classic park in east lake with uh, the you know some uh, you know a, uh, a sprinkling of big league players but there's you know there's 200 players in the Indians minor league system right. so you've got like 15 at, at classic park and uh, what what's going to happen to the uh, those, all those other guys you know all those how much you know how how much control will the player will the organization have over their training and you know it's really puts uh, you know really puts the uh, you know the, the type of instruction and the coaches that you have in the minor league system it really you know taxes them they've got a Change their mode of operation, then you really have to put a lot of trust and, and faith in the players involved as well that they're doing the work.
1: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk with Todd Paquette, our uh, minor league baseball insider uh, for the Indians uh, later on this week. I, I think we'll have him on on Friday's podcast, so uh, we'll, we'll look forward to Todd's comments there. All right. Well, the only other uh, thing I have on the uh, agenda today is is the the annual holiday that is July first. Known throughout baseball and uh, for its its comic value, uh, Bobby Bonilla Day. It's the day Bobby Bonilla gets, uh, I I believe, more than uh, slightly more than a million dollars every year from the Mets because of the the contract that he signed way back in the the nineties, and he's it's going to continue for you know several more years. Uh, What are your impressions of, uh, of of what the Mets did in order to to get Bobby Bonilla?
2: Well, they were they were stuck, the Mets. Uh, they were stuck in a. They got taken in by the guy, the Ponzi scheme king, uh, the the Mets owners, uh, uh,
1: Bernie Madoff.
2: Yeah, and and they and they were in in kind of a jam, and they figured that this was the best way to uh, you know sign sign Bonilla and uh, and. <laughs> and whoever his agent was 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 like he has to be agent of the year for for about 10 years running <clears throat> but they signed him and i think he gets paid what through 2035 he gets paid
1: 1.193 million dollars a year every year for uh, on july 1st from 2011 through 2035 that was the contract that's that's amazing it's he he's 57 years old right now and probably couldn't you know run down the first baseline and he's going to make 1.19 million dollars yeah i remember bobby
2: Bonilla, you know with the marlins helping helping them beat the indians in the 1997 world series
1: yeah it was 2000 when the mets agreed to to buy out the remaining 5.9 million on his contract so uh yeah, that's that, it's just crazy. Uh, the, it begs the question: Could the Indians set up some sort of payment system like this to pay Francisco Lindor for the next fifty years, a uh, million dollars every July first? Uh, would that entice him to to want to stay?
2: Yeah, Paul Dolan's grandsons and great-grandsons would still be paying something like that to get to pay Lindor enough to stay. I don't know. I don't know if he'd take a drip, 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 or he wants it all in one, uh, one big uh, bundle of cash. How long would that contract have to be if, if Bonilla gets
1: paid through twenty thirty five? You got to pay Lindor into you know the year twenty twenty one, don't you? <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Lindor would be 80 years old, making you know a million dollars every July first. Uh, Bobby Bonilla versus Francisco Lindor—a lot of uh, the talent difference. I, I think when the, the difference in talent uh, in their primes is probably uh, pretty significant there. So, yeah, I don't know. I, could could the Indians craft a Bobby Bonilla-like contract to keep Francisco Lindor?
2: And we'll have to run it by Antonetti. See what yeah, he's next saying. time we <laughs> talk
1: to him, right? Yeah. We'll, you want to end a Zoom call real quick? <laughs> yeah. Up, that. <laughs> that that would be the end of that call. All right, Hoinsie, Uh We're getting closer. We're getting closer to being back in the ballpark. Monday. Uh, Monday, we're expected to to have access to the the, the player workouts. So, looking forward to it. You, you, you feeling it yet?
2: Yeah, I'm starting to get excited. I'm starting to wonder, you know, what it's going to be like. Feel it's going to be weird, though, Joe. You yeah, know, like, I
1: know it's going to be. I know what it's going to be like. It's going to be weird, and it's going to be restricted, and yeah. it's going to feel all kind of kinds of. Why can't we do this? What we're normally used to doing, but, but you're right. I, I do feel the excitement. It's coming.
2: Yeah. So we got to get. You know, it's it's strange to be back and to do this in Cleveland, because you know, in spring training, it's just you know, every day is the same. You know, you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's baseball, baseball, baseball. You get up, you go to the park. You get up, you go to the park. And now uh, you're home and it's spring training. You really – it doesn't it – throws, it throws you off a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's going to be weird, uh, you know, going to the park and to, just to see the workouts and then coming home and, and trying to write. So we'll, uh, we'll figure it out. All right, Paul, we'll talk to you again tomorrow uh, here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. All right, Joe.